What is up, you guys? Welcome to another edition of Controversial Thoughts. COVID-19 is on everyone's mind, so I thought I'd share some more thoughts about this. There will be a podcast with Kirk Parsley coming on Tuesday of next week, talking about coronavirus a little more, digging into more of this data, talking about Sweden. I'm going to talk a little bit about dry tinder today and the possibility of excess mortality in the U.S. and other countries. But if you are interested in vaccine discussions, the podcast on Tuesdays with Kirk Parsley has vaccine discussions. And I did a controversial thoughts last week on Friday, on Black Friday, that many of you may have missed, uh, missed your shopping sprees, in which I talked all about my thoughts on the vaccine. I'll give you guys a quick rundown of my thoughts on the vaccine. It's from Moderna. It's from Pfizer. It requires two doses. It's an mRNA vaccine. There have been a variety of trials which showed some efficacy. The question regarding efficacy with the vaccine is that in those trials, they only looked at people who were symptomatic for recurrence of COVID. And in other trials with antibodies or other potential uh, uh, antigenic fragments of COVID, they looked at all comers after the vaccine and saw lower rates of efficacy. So I think that we don't actually have a good notion of the efficacy of the mRNA vaccine right now, and we don't know what's going to happen long term. Uh, as you'll hear on the podcast on Tuesday, Kirk Parsley and I both agreed that as healthy, metabolically robust individuals, we would not take a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, first, we would probably wait to see what the potential side effects were long term because we don't know what's going to happen with this vaccine. It's certainly been rushed, but that for people who are ail, frail or elderly, they may want to consider getting it sooner. Again, listen to the podcast on Tuesday, coming out next week, or the controversial thoughts from last Friday if you are interested in all of my vaccine thoughts. If you are interested in how to be metabolically healthy, I have done numerous videos on this, but I always get questions. You would test that by looking at things like a postprandial glucose with a continuous glucose monitor from a company like Nutrisense, or a fasting insulin would be a great start. You can calculate your HOMA IR if you get a fasting glucose. You can look at your waistline. What does metabolic health looks like? It usually looks like a flat abdomen, could even look like a six-pack abs, doesn't have to be six-pack abs, but if you are obese, there is certainly a possibility of metabolic unhealth. And as I spoke about in the vaccine video previously, there is good data from previous trials with immunization for influenza or other illnesses that those with metabolic dysfunction are not going to generate as much immunity. So the question remains with this mRNA vaccine from Pfizer and Moderna, which requires two doses, and it requires both of those doses to remain very chilled because the mRNA is unstable, what sort of efficacy will we see and what will the long-term effects be? Certainly, I believe it will help people, but it will not solve the underlying problem of metabolic dysfunction, which puts us all at risk for cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes, complications of all these things, which are, I believe, the real killers in our society. So if you look at um, the mainstream media, places like the New York Times are now talking about who is going to get the vaccine first and who should get it first. So this is an article from the New York Times yesterday, who goes first, who should receive the coronavirus vaccine. According to the New York Times, who knows, who knows how much we trust these, healthcare workers and nursing home residents will likely be the first people to receive the vaccine in December, maybe 40 million doses, which would be um, about 20 million people that might get vaccinated. Um, now, they're saying that would be enough to vaccinate 3 million people who live in long-term long care facilities as well as most of the country's 21 million 
healthcare workers. Remember, you can need two doses of these vaccines. Now, January, Pfizer and Moderna are planning to roll out more. They're having an initial batch of 40 million doses, which will vaccinate another 20 million people. And perhaps we'll see who goes in January, February, and March. Uh, people over 65, especially those over 75 with medical conditions, might get the vaccine. And they're hoping to get to 150 million doses. According to the New York Times, the plan is then for April, May, and June, people who don't qualify as a priority, like healthy non-essential workers younger than 65 will be receiving the vaccine by the spring. So we'll see what happens here. We'll, we'll hope that the vaccine is efficacious and that um, there are not long-term side effects from this. Again, my concerns are that a vaccine won't fix underlying metabolic health, which will leave many of the people who are susceptible to coronavirus susceptible to illnesses long-term and we're missing an opportunity to really tell people about the importance of metabolic health. This brings up the concept of dry tinder, something I talked about with Ivor Cummins in my podcast with him two weeks ago. It's an epidemiologic term. It's not meant to be derogatory. It's meant to discuss the fact that there are many people in our society who are frail and elderly. And even over a six to eight month window, there's a rolling membership in the group of people who are most frail and most elderly and most likely to be negatively affected by something like a flu or a coronavirus. Interestingly, if we look at countries like Sweden, what we find is that um, there was a less amount of mortality leading up to the coronavirus pandemic. And this has been pointed out as one of the reasons Sweden got hit hard in the beginning, but they're actually looking pretty good now. And you can see this across Nordic countries if you look at their levels of mortality leading up to the coronavirus pandemic. So this is a graphic that I borrowed from Ivor Cummins. Uh, shout out to Ivor. And you can see here, this is the total um, mortality in Sweden, a 52-week trailing average. And you can see that leading up to coronavirus, there is this decline. And this is what accounts for dry tinder. Then you see a bump here with coronavirus. And here, similarly, we have dry tinder in Great Britain leading to a bump with coronavirus. Now, in both of these countries, we're seeing the curve roll over. And if you look at Sweden right now, they're doing pretty darn good, even with their not intense lockdown strategy. If you have any questions about the efficacy of lockdown, listen to the podcast with Kirk Parsley. In that podcast, I mention uh, references at Ivor's website and other places that show very clearly that lockdowns do not affect the course of this viral disease. But you can see here, if we compare Finland and Norway, these countries did not have lower amounts of mortality leading up to coronavirus and they didn't get hit as hard. So this is not the lockdown necessarily that is causing them to have lower amounts of mortality. It's that perhaps there was not this dry tinder. There was not a large amount of people in the population who were very susceptible to coronavirus. And so what we're seeing here, this is the best use of epidemiology. I know you guys may think of that as the E word in my videos that I've said epidemiology is horrible. And epidemiology is quite misleading when we're talking about nutrition and how to be metabolically healthy. But um, in the case of these sort of influenza and COVID, these infectious illness pandemics, uh, epidemiology helps us make significant um, really decisions about how best to move forward. So if we look at the United States, we can see that there does appear to be some excess mortality, but the question is, what will it end up being in the long run? So these numbers are easy to get. This is the United States, our world in data, and you can look at mortality previous years versus this year. And you can see here that mortality in the United States follows a seasonal pattern. 
This happens everywhere. If you look at the European data, this is from Euromomo, you see that every winter there is an excess mortality above the normal. And that what happened in 2020 was quite interesting. That as if you look at 2018 in Europe, for instance, you can integrate the area under this curve leading up to the 17th week and see, ah, there was this increase in mortality above the average. And then again, it happened in 2019. There's a smaller increase above the average. And then in 2020, there was almost no increase. And this is again, a summation of all countries in Europe, but there probably was a significant amount of quote, dry tinder in Europe. And then coronavirus comes along and there is an increase in mortality, but it looks very striking because this is usually the time when mortality is declining. Coronavirus hit at a time of year when there is usually not a lot of excess mortality. It hit when winter was moving away. And so you see this in the United States as well, that our average mortality is usually very low during this time. And yet this is when coronavirus arrived. And you can see that this graphic unfortunately doesn't show you all of the winter of 2019-2020, but it we had a fairly average winter there. There wasn't an excess. You can go back here and look at the, the higher year in 2018, when in, in the United States, we had a pretty severe winter of deaths and a lot of the dry tinder went away. And then we had lower rates of death throughout the rest of the year. So there is this rolling average, this rolling sense that at any one point in time in the United States, there are people who are more susceptible to illness. And if something severe comes along, it will result in them dying, which is tragic, but we have to think about it in epidemiologic terms. The ultimate question is, how serious is coronavirus really? And is it possible that coronavirus is accounting for deaths in people who may have died anyway? And so that's the question that we're not trying to ask in a callous way. We're just trying to ask in a way that actually helps us make decisions about what to do. Because as you all know, there's a lot of discussion about coronavirus right now. And there's a lot of concern, at least from me and others, that lockdowns, which are not effective, may come back. So what we'll have to see in the United States is we'll need to expand this graph to look back to the winter of 2019 to 2020, and then we'll have to see what their mortality is this winter. As you can see, the CDC only goes up to October 18th because they're still compiling data, but um, the, um, the rest of the winter here will be very interesting to see where it ends up. And if we actually go back to the average or below the average, and then what happens next year, um, are these individuals who died of coronavirus those who were the most sick, I would suggest that's very plausible. And are these people who may have died in the next six months primarily or year anyway, if that is the case, we will see lower than average mortality in the following years. Now, I'll go back to the Euromomo data real quick here and show something that Ivor and I talked about, which is that though there's a spike here, you'll see that the spike for this winter already appears to have curled over in Europe. So again, the data is still coming in, but weeks, you can even see starting at week 44, 46, 45, um, we'll see where this data goes. I think they're still waiting to see what the data is here, but it's possible that this winter may not be a very bad winter at all uh, in Europe. It may not actually end up having any significantly more uh, area under the curve in these previous winters when there was no major deal. People didn't make a big deal. You can see here this, uh, this sort of shaded area is corrected for a delay in registration. So we can't tell exactly what's going on here yet, but we'll watch the winter in Europe and the winter in the United States as coronavirus is now endemic. Interestingly, if you look at mortality in a place like Sweden, you can see that leading up to the coronavirus pandemic, there was quote unquote dry tinder. You can see this red line is significantly below the average. Then they got hit 
And now you can see they're back to the average or below the average. And again, they're not doing anything right now in terms of lockdowns at all. They're actually looking better than most of Europe. Again, this data is uh, subject to change. This only goes to November 8th and it's being updated. But this concept that um, Sweden's dry tinder may account for many COVID deaths is quite fascinating. And we have to interpret this on a case-by-case -case basis in countries and think, what was the previous season's mortality? Were there more people who were susceptible to an illness like this that sadly passed away from coronavirus? Well, that makes us think that those people may have died anyway in the next year, or perhaps um, would have died in a normal year previously. So what we're really questioning with COVID is how many extra deaths is this accounting for with people who would not have died in the next six months or a year in general? And I think that people are beginning to question this, though, as we all know, questioning that status quo is quite controversial. And there was a very interesting example of this out of Johns Hopkins that occurred last week. So this is something that came up in the conversation with Kirk Parsley, but we didn't have the actual uh, reference at the time. So in the Johns Hopkins newsletter on November the 26th, excuse me, the November the 27th, there was an article published by Genevieve Briand titled COVID-19 deaths to look at the US data. Now, Hopkins chose to retract the article on November the 26th to stop the spread of misinformation, as they noted on social media. They do have the PDF because they use standards for transparency. And if you read the PDF, what this economist essentially, uh, who's looking at the statistics, is saying, Genevieve Briand, is that number one, throughout the year in 2019 and into 2020, there were actually for the majority of 2020, these are weeks one through 32 in 2020, there were no changes in the percentage deaths by age category. This is CDC data. You can see blue, orange, gray, yellow, um, darker blue, et cetera. Now, this is, again, total deaths by category uh, of the percentage. This is not absolute overall numbers. But she points out this interesting fact that if COVID is really so bad for the elderly, why do we not see a higher percentage of the elderly dying here? It's an interesting point. But then she goes on in this article to suggest that is it possible that um, overall, the number of deaths from other causes are declining. So you can see in this graphic, which is a little bit hard to read, um, this part that is highlighted is the last few um, months to year. And you can see, uh, if you look at these, it, none of these articles actually show what the yellow and the green line are. But you can see these other lines represent cardiovascular disease, diabetes. And her point with this graphic was that these appear to have gone down as COVID and this blue line representing pneumonia and respiratory illness has gone up. And so the question becomes, and this is a question that we're trying to answer. Again, Johns Hopkins retracted this article because they felt like this was misleading, but I think it's an important question to keep asking. Um, is the decline in these other deaths accounted for by the increase in coronavirus? If so, then we have two things to consider. Are people who were most susceptible in a dry tinder type of category, again, that's not meant to be derogatory, it's just an epidemiologic term, um, the ones who are sadly passing away from coronavirus that may have passed away from other causes, and secondarily, is it possible that coronavirus deaths are being categorized incorrectly? Now, as you'll hear in the conversation with Kirk Parsley, I think we all see some evidence that in the beginning there was that people were playing fast and loose with our characterization of coronavirus, but it's hard to know um, how many of these people would have died otherwise. I think this is one of the more controversial graphics in her article, though I don't believe it's incorrect. Now, again, this is going back to the week ending April 25th, 2020, and showing that there's a decrease in 
um, in other diseases and an increase in COVID. And so they're almost equivalent saying, hmm, are people who may have passed away from septicemia, nephritis, flu and pneumonia, diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, chronic respiratory disease, heart diseases and cancers actually now passing away due to coronavirus? And would that have resulted in um, excess deaths? Now, interestingly, um, as people are tweeting here, this was a bombshell assertion by uh, Johns Hopkins Econ you know, staff member, um, and then it was retracted. Um, the quote was that uh, it had relatively no effect on deaths in the United States. Now, as we saw from the overall data, that looks to not be totally the case, but it is interesting that uh, Hopkins felt like this was supporting a dangerous narrative and chose to retract it. So let's go back to the US mortality data. I think that Hopkins then points to this and says, hey, look, there is a US mortality increase, but one of the reasons we see this big increase in US mortality may also be that this is the time of year when we usually don't see this coronavirus came at a very strange time. And we may have had a lot of dry tinder in the US as well um, as we were at the average or below the average leading up to this in terms of overall flu deaths. Now. If you're really interested, you can go to flu view and look at the flu deaths in the United States. And you can see that right when coronavirus happens around week 12 to 14, these basically drop off the face of the earth. And for the remainder of um, 2020, there have been essentially no flu deaths. So is some of this um, happening uh, with coronavirus death accounting for this or people who would have perished from the flu now dying from coronavirus. So ultimately, I think we are left with a lot of questions about the vaccine, about the severity of coronavirus, about people who may have been susceptible. Certainly in Sweden, we see that. Certainly in the UK, we see that. And in other countries, we've seen that there was not that issue. And that may have been why their coronavirus deaths were not as severe. But we're all trying to wrestle with this question uh, of how serious is coronavirus? Will I die? Will my family die? Do we need to worry about it? I continue to feel like the main thing for all of us here is metabolic health. And being metabolically healthy is the main thing that we can all do to protect ourselves immunologically. And that those who are metabolically healthy um, will likely be just fine with coronavirus. Again, uh, all empathy and um, uh, condolences to those who may have lost people or been negatively affected by coronavirus. But as a society, I continue to feel like we don't need to be afraid. There's really not good evidence that lockdowns are effective. and. Doing that again, I think would have many collaterally damaging effects. I talk about all of that in the podcast with Kirk Parsley. How do you become metabolically healthy? Do the things we always talk about. Eat nose to tail, get organs, get fresh organs. If you can't get fresh organs, get desiccated organs. You guys know at Hardened Soil, hardensoil.co, we've got the desiccated organs for you. We've got beef organs and fire starter back in stock. We've got Immunomilk and Heart of the Warrior coming next week. You can certainly use fresh organs. You don't have to use our desiccated organs, but if they help you eat an animal-based diet, then I hope that is a uh, positive thing in your life and it feels very meaningful to do this work. I'll also say that I've been speaking a lot more on social media about animal-based diets in general and the importance of animal-based diets. And so if you have questions about what an animal-based diet is, look at my Instagram, look at my Twitter, reach out to me, Dr. Paul, drpaul at heartandsoil.co. But to become metabolically healthy, I think you want to eat an animal-based diet. You want to limit seed oils. You want to limit processed carbohydrates. You want to have a healthy weight. You want to make animal foods the center of your diet. And you want to 
um, you want to make sure that you are getting nose to tail. And if you're eating plant foods, eat the least toxic plant foods. I think that will allow you to thrive in all of the ways. That's my message in general. I love the carnivore diet. You guys know that I eat a 99% animal-based diet at this point, or I should say 99% carnivore diet. I throw in occasional carbohydrates in addition to nose to tail animal foods. There's a video on the Heart and Soil website about how I eat in a day. It's basically the same as that now. It hasn't changed much in the last few months. So hopefully this is helpful, guys. I think that the last thing I'll leave you with is that there continues to be a very large amount of data showing the importance of vitamin D uh, in COVID deaths. Uh, this is an article published no, on October 19th, 2020. The title of the article is Vitamin D Insufficiency May Account for Almost 9 of 10 COVID-19 Deaths. Time to Act. Comment on Vitamin D Deficiency in the Outcome of COVID-19 Patients. And basically, it's important to point out that uh, vitamin D deficiency can, um, can be connected with metabolic dysfunction as well. And if you compare the rate of death in Japan and Italy, you see a striking difference. Now, we can't say this is causal, but there are other articles out now that compare the rates of um, vitamin D deficiency in Italy versus Japan. And in Japan, they're a much better vitamin D status, whether that's from supplementation, being in the sun, or overall metabolic health, that's better. It's hard to say, but it's very clear that if you live somewhere like most of us do, where you're not going to get sun this winter, you should consider vacations to places with ultraviolet light, vitamin D supplementation, which I cannot be convinced or completely sure is actually going to be the same as real sunlight. And becoming metabolically healthy and potentially even just being exposed to UV light from something like a spare T vitamin D lamp. Again, no affiliation there. Um, but, uh, I do think something like that could be helpful for all of you. So don't ignore that piece of the equation either. And the last article I'll leave you with is this one, which is a quite recent article, COVID-19 mortality, a matter of vulnerability among nations facing limited margins of adaptation. Title doesn't really tell us everything, but if you look at the results here, higher COVID, higher COVID death rates are observed in the 25, 65 latitude and in the negative 35, negative 125 longitude ranges. The national criteria most associated with death rate are life expectancy and its slowdown. The public health context, which they admit is metabolic health, non-communicable diseases burden versus infectious disease prevalence the economy and the environment, the temperature ultraviolet index. So the stringency of the measures settled to fight the pandemia, including lockdown, did not appear to be linked with death rate. So this article, which you can read, um, was saying two things, or three things really, that latitude matters, which is a vitamin D thing, most likely, and connected with metabolic health. And they're saying metabolic health is critical and that lockdowns didn't help. So how do we move forward? Well, if you're in the most vulnerable groups, I think it's reasonable to consider the vaccine. If you're not in those groups, it's probably gonna be difficult for you to get the vaccine. And it may be more prudent though, this is your decision to wait and make sure that there are no long-term sequelae of the vaccine. Um, being metabolically healthy, I believe will put all of us, regardless of age group, into a position where we are most able to fight the virus. Ultimately, I think we all hope that life can get back to normal, but we should not use this, we should not lose this opportunity to become healthier individuals. Sure, the vaccine, provided it's safe, will protect people from coronavirus. But remember that dry tinder is dry tinder. And if you or someone you know is susceptible to illness, that they are susceptible to illness, whether that illness is coronavirus, cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes, dementia, and whatever, and that we are all about quality of life. And so a vaccine will not make you 
anything other than dry tinder for other diseases. So that, again, is not meant to be a derogatory or pejorative term. It's just meant to be an epidemiologic term that sort of illustrates metaphorically this idea of who is most susceptible. The thing is that you guys can all decide who becomes more and less susceptible. So listen to this one. You guys already did listen to this one. Listen to last week's controversial thoughts on the vaccine. Listen to the first podcast with Ivor Cummins from two weeks ago. Listen to the podcast on Tuesday with Kirk Parsley if you're interested in COVID. And hopefully this helps make sense of the current environment. Love you guys. Stay radical.